Thank you very much. Uh, so I know that we need to finish by 3.30, so I'll stick to my 20 minutes. Um, so thank you very much for the invitation. And this is um, sort of part of um, one of the chapters of the monograph that should come out of the, from the HSC project. Um, therefore, since I'm talking to um, not Italian <coughs> studies specialists, I've sort of taken a sort of kind of more um, theoretically spe speaking, but trying to sort of work through a definition of cosmopolitanism as articulated during the repressive regime. So during the Italian, and as my starting point, I have a sort of material I've looked at are literary journals. So during the Italian fascist rule, modernist literary and cultural reviews engendered productive aesthetic and cultural debates about the role of the arts had to play in relation to the political and cultural doctrine of the totalitarian state. So under totalitarian rule, modernist magazines became a space of non-political intervention, of course, but also a space of democratic intervention. It did predictably foster what one could describe as an attitude of engaged indifference. In a nutshell, journals rejected a public-private distinction for they were openly accessible, used common resources, had common effects, were used for the performance of public roles, and the editors of journals often performed public roles. On the 19th of May 1945, <coughs> in an article entitled L'Italia rinuncia, rinuncia, Italy gives up, poet Eugenio Montale suggested that the rise of fascism was one of the many manifestations of the lack of public en engagement endemically spread amongst the leading Italian elites. Indeed, we could further suggest that this notion of Italian intellectuals as absent minds described a particular cultural system that largely deemed the practice and attitude of sustained indifference, not simply as a <coughs> form of escapism, as Montale argued, but rather as an effective means of reacting against the regime's myopia. So we could start with the definition of cosmopolitanism, which is, in my opinion, as far as that particular cultural system uh, where engaged indifference seemed to be the main attitude, in depth to Kant's formulation of what he called cosmopolitan right or the right to enter dialogue with different communities, political aesthetic, with artificial delimitation and constraint. Such right acted according to the principle of equal worth and dignity, so there was a dialogue between different communities, uh, intellectual communities, active agency, so examples and roles were, were to be discussed and rejected, personal responsibility, the editors often felt that they had a responsibility, a consent, because there was an open debate. Ko Chortan, in the same cosmopolitan uh, reader, uh, which I quoted uh, just before about Kant, um, argued for the compatibility of liberal nationalism and cosmopolitanism, for the construction of identity. And I think as far as this particular scenario is concerned, the Italian elites, in order to preserve their identity, had to adjust to <coughs> cosmopolitan ethos or share justice above the state, but were also forced to act within the state. So I think in a sense, cosmopolitanism functioned as a super partes, but also intra partes. So looking back at the 19th century Italian tradition from the 1930s, Marxist Antonio Gramsci noted that from the 1880 to the end of the century, the cosmopolitan ideal enabled many Italian intellectuals to mediate between the global and the local because of its anti-essentialist ethos. According to Gramsci, cosmopolitanism was an historical as well as a political and cultural endeavor. 
which in the particular case of late 19th century Italy was closely connected to the poor national and state spirit in the modern sense, scarso spirito nazionale e statale in senso moderno, caused in Italy and fostered by the long-standing absence of an Italian political and national history. So Gramsci also returns to the same point in his notebook 19, 1934-1935, and then his notes on the Risorgimento in 1933. So Gramsci analyzed the phenomenon of, of cosmopolitanism, and it clearly links with um, an Italian problem, which is the disconnections between the elites and the people, and it obviously the Risorgimento as one of the manifestations of this disconnection between the leading elites and la gente, the, il popolo, the people. Um, so Gramsci rejected forms of... And Gramsci wrote that in 1934, so during the Italian dictatorship. Gramsci rejected form of cultural nationalism which did not enter into dialogue with foreign culture for, according to him, the cosmopolitan dialogue are indispensable to the progress of any modern nation-state. Crucially, therefore, Gramsci understood the brand of cosmopolitanism practiced by the Italian elites after unification as playing a key role in the evolution of cultural and political life of Italy. So in, brief, in his brief comments, Gramsci connected the national to the international arena, reintroduced the tension between elite and popular, supported the moral dimension of cosmopolitanism, and suggested a view of it, of it as a means of cultural and political resistance rather than a super partes republic of letter. I think it's, that's the key point about looking at cosmopolitanism during the dictatorship as a political tool. What did mark the distinction, of course, between a totalitarian state apparatus and form of liberal democracy was the relation, often paradoxical in nature, that it was established between the state and the realm of the arts, <coughs> everything in the state, or for the state, nothing outside the state, declared Mussolini in 1925. Alessandro Tarquini, in one of the re most recent monographs on La Cultura Fascista, have observed on how, on the one hand, the totalitarian Italian state had to guide the life of the citizen, and it had to do so by intervening in both the public and the private spheres. But at the same time, he had to allow spaces of non-intervention in the realm of high art. So the regime could not intervene in the realm of art. Therefore, cosmopolitanism was vital, as I will actually argue, for the survival of Italian culture through the dictatorship. So cosmopolitanism, as practiced by the Italian elites under the regime, showed how the autonomization of the field of cultural production, typical of the avant-garde, was challenged by the totalitarian and universalistic politics of the regime. If the formation of the autonomous sphere of the aesthetic was one of the effects of the rise of bourgeois society, we can see how that its incomplete totalitarian statalization, e.g. nationalization, was one of the consequences of the crisis of legitimacy in democratic participation in the cultural life of the nation, championed by the dictatorship. And in this crisis, in this gap, crisis if you want to see as a break, or gap if you want to see it as Gramsci as the distinction between the elite, the junction between the elite and the popular, cosmopolitan culture could guarantee a space of political intervention and not only in aesthetic terms. Um, if we look closely at the aesthetics promoted by modernist magazines or by the elites who found their voices in those outlets and the official debates on the arts of and within the fascist state, we can find some similarities. 
So the official debate on state art addressed similar concern, namely the universal cosmopolitan imperative of using the arts as a platform for fostering social modernization in the civic sphere. So, and in other words, if we look at it from the side of the regime and we look at this, the response of the intellectual who gather around journalists, we see that we have an idea of the arts as intervention and transformation. And in many ways, modernity, which was the aim of the new art that Italy had to build, understood as cosmopolitan modernity, uh, was often understood and accepted as long as it was a process of rationalization of forms according to a series of aesthetic principles. Now, the two aesthetic principles that I want to connect with the debate about cosmopolitanism, internationalism, and I think in those years, it's something I can't really go into at the moment, but it becomes very blurred because the avant-garde are often a very, they come from the trajectory looked at Soviet Union directly. So at that point, there's also cosmopolitanism, which intersect very clearly with internationalism. And I don't think at that point when really the distinction was actually very clear. So the two principles, uh, part of this process of rationalization of forms, were the, the new theorization of the relationship between subjectivity and objectivity. So the theorization of the relationship between subjectivity and objectivity was fundamental, both to the practice, aesthetic practice of the regime, but also to what should be the new Italian culture. But also the other principle is linked to the legitimization of the artist's intellectual participation in the public sphere. So often to legitimize the participation of the uh, intellectual artist in the public sphere, they went and found often examples abroad. Um, I will sort of go through some of the main steps that the regime took in order to sort of come up with a, a conceptualization of their own aesthetics. As early as in 1925, the Italian fascist regime was deeply concerned with how to present itself as a new political and aesthetic, fo aesthetic form, embodying modernity and social transformation. The role of the state, the state and that of the arts within it uh, is clearly defined in the initial formulation in terms of totalitarian and hierarchical control over the social sphere. Not only the institutional apparatus of the states, but also the arts, to join forces to organize form of social life. In this initial phase, however, after 1929, with the agreement with the Vatican, there was still space of some kind of partial autonomy. The debate on fascist art peaked in 1926, and 1926 is the time where we actually promulgation of the fascist law, and it reached interesting yet open conclusions. From 1927 onwards, the regime started a repressive campaign on many fronts, and the question of the arts' sociability lost topicality, which returned in the year in 1932, which was the year of the celebration for the Decennale, the 10th anniversary of the regime. In February 1932, the question of the latter fascist and the problem of fascist art resurfaced under two guises that were informed by and look back at the initial debate. At the same time, on, 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 on the one hand, the 1929 European crisis had propelled economic consideration, which were central to the position of the individual within the social sphere. 
but also there was a new move, aesthetic move towards realism. So I think it, with the 1929 crisis, you got a sense of having to go back and rethink about the relationship of the individual with the social sphere, and at the same time, the aesthetic response to it was a new formulation of the idea of realism. Um, on the 15th of February 1932, from Critica Fascista, which was the journal, uh, the fascist journal of excellence, the opening article of the journal, Esortazione al Realismo, Encouragement to Realism, encouraged writer in total to be realist, anti-bourgeois and fascist, in order not only to support national values, but also to be competitive at the European and transatlantic level. So there's an encouragement from within the fascist state to be Europeans, to be competitive. So, and this is, I don't think I have enough time to go into all the examples, but this is often um, the paradox within the state where cosmopolitanism is accepted because necessary, because there is a gap, because there's not an Italian tradition that actually can function uh, the same way as the big European norm. So you can be cosmopolitan as long as cosmopolitanism means also competition. Um, what is interesting in this, if this is actually the position of the regime, uh, interest towards realism, the new European novel, obviously there are also economic interests that um, encourage this position. It's also interesting to see what happens in the youth culture of the regime, which happens at the fringes of the main central, um, central spheres. And I'm taking as an example a couple of journals, three journals. One is called Occidente, a Synthesis dell'attività letteraria del mondo, Occidente, Synthesis of the <laughs> Literary Activity in the World, which is published from 1932 to 1935. Something that I've not said, that I'm actually thinking about the, the, the period 1929-1935, which is actually the peak of consensus for the regime. Uh, but also the unorthodox Il Saggiatore and Orpheus. Il Saggiatore was published 1930-1933 and Orpheus 1932-1934 between Milan and Rome. Um, and Occidente was a review which was modernist and transatlantic in aspiration. And was represented of a cultural position and vision within the fascist regime that almost indiscriminately championed avant-garde innovation. Occidente is an important agent in the field and in our argument um, because it gives a clear evidence of how cosmopolitan concerns as, to, as to, to the European and Italian novel went hand in hand with those as to realism, understood in the broad sense of a political and aesthetic statement which encapsulated the very same idea of modernity, a new narrative form of narrative communication. In the first few issues of the review, in practice, we find translations of Axley, Lawrence, uh, Werfel, Liam O'Flaherty, Cocteau, Joyce, Labreau, Conrad, Faulkner, Wolfe, Dos Passos, and so on, Hemingway, Kane. But also, these translations were actually published in parallels by articles written by men standing at the centre of the regime as well as its fringes, with the likes of Corrado Alvaro, Massimo Bontempelli, Mario Puccini, minor figures like Enrico Rocca, Corrado Pavolini, um, and John Giulio Baragaglia, but also main figures like Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, Salvatore Quasimodo, Elio Vittorini, and so on. So in virtually every issue, there is at least one article dealing with the novel, or with the European novel, or with the novel in the European context. For instance, in his Ritratti Americani, American Portrait, 
Attilio Ricci, minor figure, drew an ins incisive and forceful connection between Hemingway and Faulkner. They look, they look alike because they're looking for a new style. And despite being guilty of some moral slippage, i personaggi di Faulkner sono sempre esseri umani. Faulkner's characters are always human beings. So individuality cannot be tantamount to self-referentiality, but must be a reflection of a socially embedded subjectivity and has to become synonymous with the same collective performance um, described, for example, by another writer, Enrico Rocca, in his essay on Hermann Kessner or the Teletrasfigurazione del Cuore, or the movement of the heart. In this essay, Rocca attributes to the German writer's deep moral sense um, exuding from his heart to his ability to activate a truthful, and larger, and mediated individual performative engagement with the real. So what they do in the debate on the novel, and there are many examples, is actually trying to find examples, cosmopolitan examples, in order to bring back the reflection on the relationship between individuality and objectivity, which is at the center of the redefinition of the relationship between individuality and collectivity, which shaped the totalitarian idea of the arts. And it's interesting how it's paradoxical and constantly woven into the cosmopolitan international discourse. Sometimes, some of these essays, Considerazioni sul Romanzo, for example, published um, by, um, say, Matilio Ricci, was also published in a um, fascist journal. So they exchange also, they move from the fascist journals to the, no the modernist journal. Um, so increasing, and this debate goes <coughs> goes on for about five or six years. Increasingly and unquestionably, as so into the fully-fledged age of consensus, the Italian novel had to look at the international scene to transform itself into the artistic form that embodied aesthetic and political modernity and commitment. So just like the claims of cri in Critica Fascista, Occidente and others legislated that realist aesthetic and modernizing social transformation could, be, could take place by rejecting, rejecting forms of solipsistic wandering to embrace modernity and a closer contact with objectivity as practice at the European level. How much? Okay, there is, I'll summarize what's the next. The other debate that I wanted to actually draw your attention to was about the legitimation of the artist's intellectual participation in the public sphere. And this debate takes place in two other two journals. One is entitled Il Saggiatore and the other one Orpheus. So there are journals which in 1933 launch a campaign about what has to be the new Italian fascist culture. And they go back, both of them, to European values. And what is interesting is that despite they come from a point of view of a sort of, sort of almost fascist art, and it's the fringes of the regime, they want to reintroduce into what they understand the new Italian culture, what they call the humanist Latin tradition. And one of the, auth the authors and intellectuals they always go back to, both of those journals, actually Benda. And in these two uh, journals, again, at the fringes of the youth culture of the regime, we have not only the debate on realism, which will lead after post-war to neorealism, but also uh, an international dialogue which actually will be 
translated into the idea of the engaged writer, which we'll have only post-war. Uh, so, in, in, in short, I think the idea of cosmopolitanism within a totalitarian state is incredibly important because it acted as a transformative force insofar as it helped Italian culture to survive through a dictatorship. It enabled, it kind of prepared for the transformation of post-war, encapsulating and reworking some of the debates at European level. Of course, they had to do so by proposing a fairly nationalistic agenda, which had to be the nationalistic agenda of the regime, within, in disguise, and through the commitment that the elites had with the national, um, the international scene. And I will, in the last minute I have, what is interesting is that, paradoxically, a closing, in a sense, a closing ranks will, will actually be after the end of Second World War. And one of the intellectuals will actually publish a review and will refuse an international dialogue, will be in 1955, Pasolini. Mm -hmm. So in 1955, Pasolini publishes a review and has no you know, foreign contributors. So in the post-war, it's a return, in a sense, to the consolidation of the nation-state after the dismantling of it, of the war and the dictatorship, which in many ways will refuse this kind of free dialogue, uh, cosmopolitan free dialogue. And at that point, however, I think that the relationship between cosmopolitanism and politics will actually be a lot more distinguished because of the role of the Soviet Union and Italy be part of the Western bloc much more than the English. So that's it. Thank you.